You're listening to podcasts from the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee, www.netcaucus.org. Um, I, we are hosting this event with the, by the Congressional Internet Caucus Advisory Committee in conjunction with the Congressional Internet Caucus and its co-chairs. Um, and on the House side, the co-chairs of the Congressional Internet Caucus are Congressman Bob Goodlatte and Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. The Senate co-chairs are Senator John Thune and Senator Patrick Leahy. Um, we are we are in their debt for um, host supporting this program. Um, they don't agree on on every issue, and frankly, not on a lot of issues. But um, we're thrilled that they agree that the internet should have a place where we can debate these issues um, with with expert speakers like we have today. So um, I want to thank them. And our moderator today is uh, Tal Copen, and she is with Politico. She's a, a cybersecurity pro reporter, and she has covered this issue quite a bit over the past several years from the cybersecurity side and on the revenge porn side. And she's perfectly situated to moderate our panel today. Um, and her Twitter account information is on the on the program as well. And so Tal, take it away. Thank you, Tim, and thank you to the NET Caucus uh, for having me here today. Uh, it's a very interesting topic, um, which we'll be diving into pretty much head first. Just to uh, introduce our panel, um, sort of from from here down on, we've got uh, Marianne, Marianne Franks, who's the Associate Professor of Law at the University of Miami School of Law. Um, to her left is Emma Lonzo, Director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology followed by Rob Pegararo, who's a columnist at Yahoo Tech, and David Post, a contributor at the Volek Conspiracy uh, on WashingtonPost.com. And, you know, all of these uh, fine people have a lot of expertise in this topic from a lot of different angles, uh, which is sort of how I wanted to start off today. Uh, one of the most interesting things about this hack of the celeb photos is that it really raised a lot of different issues for a lot of different people. Uh, as a cybersecurity reporter, I covered, you know, in terms of the password security on the cloud and, and what the technical aspects of the hack might have been and, and what the dark web was sort of doing with these pictures. But it raised a whole number of conversations from, you know, misogyny on the Internet to what actually is the nature of the crime that occurred, uh, whether you look at it from a perspective Perspective of, as Jennifer Lawrence said, a sex crime? Is it a hacking crime? Is there a First Amendment issue here? And so I expect we'll sort of touch on all those different takeaways today. And um, how I would like to begin is if each of the panelists could sort of go down and, and say what for them was sort of the one or two big takeaways uh, from when this hack occurred and sort of burst into the news and, and how they sort of saw the, the issue as being the most important frame to look at it from. So. <coughs> So I think a good place, as good a place to start as any is with Jennifer Lawrence calling what happened to her a sex crime. I think a lot of people were taken aback by that particular characterization because it isn't obviously clear that as a matter of current law that that's true. But I think what it really highlighted is it gives us an invitation to think about what we think a crime is, what we think a sex crime in particular is, and then maybe thinking about ways in which we can recognize it as being such. And so I think it's interesting to hear from such a high-profile victim of this particular behavior that her own sense of what it was was this violation for her of sexual autonomy, the sense of humiliation and exposure that she would classify for herself as a sex crime. So what I think it, what I think would be for me, at least, the perspective that I would take on this is to consider why we criminalize certain types of behavior. When do we start drawing the line between just bad behavior and really, really serious behavior that we think deserves and needs a response from the criminal law? And I'd invite us to think about that in terms of why we think the criminal law is important. Not a narrow focus of we want to lock people up, but rather a social expression, a condemnation of certain types of harms that are so serious that one of the only ways that we can express it as a community is to say this should be against the law. And to think about the particular nature of what happened to Lawrence and to other victims not so high profile as her in terms of the daily suffering and the daily humiliation that they have to experience that they can never get back, that there's really no way to undo what has been done, that the harm in these cases really is, in most cases, irreversible and ongoing. And so what I really hope that we can do to frame this conversation by looking to a perspective of a victim is to think about why we might care about the fact that sexual humiliation has now become an entertainment industry and what our responsibility is as a society and as people who are concerned about having a free, open, democratic, equal Internet, what we should be doing in response to that. Uh, thank you. And I thought, um, you know, it's very interesting how um, Professor Franks is talking about uh, 
looking for, for social expressions of condemnation about this kind of behavior, because that, to me, was one of the um, major differences I saw in the response around um, this most recent uh, exposure of celebrity photos compared to how this issue and how the um, you know, non-consensual disclosure of nude images has been treated um, you know, over the years. Uh, five years ago or you know, several years ago when, when many of us um, seated at the table here started first following this issue, it was very difficult to get people to even engage on the question at all. You know, there was just not a public conversation about, um, you know, how is this being, how is this effective of exposing someone else's photos uh, being used as a way to try to um, go after women, to harass them, to silence them, and to, to see that shift in the public conversation about, you know, there's much more of a willingness for um, major media outlets and for, you know, just people engaging on, on social media to be talking about the other side of the story, to talk about, you know, no, people shouldn't be going and following these links. The information might be out there on the internet, but we don't have to click the link and go see it and to really treat what has happened um, to the peoples whose photos have been exposed as, as a real harm that's happened to them. So I think it's a good thing generally that we're having much more of that conversation um, happen, you know, in public, in society to, to really appreciate, as Professor Franks is saying, the real harm that is happening to women when they're targeted in this way. Um, and then, of course, the, the concern that I see coming from a, a First Amendment and um, open internet background is wanting to see if there are, are proposals on how to take a, a stronger response to this, um, ensuring that whatever those proposals are, are not so broadly crafted that they end up pulling in a lot of um, protected expression as well. You know, there's a way, it's very difficult to craft a law that goes after, that makes a crime of disclosing information in a way that only gets after a, you know, a bad or a malicious disclosure of information and doesn't also sweep in a lot of really vital and important speech. And so I hope one of the things that we get to focus on in our conversation today is looking at what are all of the existing laws that, that really do identify the kinds of harms that happen here, whether it's a person trying to inflict emotional distress on a per another person, a person launching a campaign of harassment against someone, um, whether there's a, you know, the Federal Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to cover the hacking aspect of things. There are ways that we've addressed the harms that can come from this kind of behavior um, in existing law that don't entail focusing specifically on the speech aspect of it. My first reaction my first reaction was there was this, oh, it's a bunch of celebrities in trouble response, which I thought really unhelpful and stupid because I'm sure no one in this room has pictures they don't want shared with the entire Internet, just with their friends on Facebook or maybe some of those people on Facebook. Um, and that's, I think, a better way to look at it because if you just, I mean, just calling it Celebgate was one of the stupider gate um, buzzwords thrown around. I also spent a lot of time looking at how exactly Apple's security is set up because one of the things is if you want to keep your information safe, do the tools available, for, do they actually help? And in Apple's case at the time, they did not. They had a really weak implementation of two-step verification. And even if you'd done it, if you'd done all the things people tell you to, that didn't protect iCloud backups. And the whole way iCloud works, you know, I have an iPad at home, and I'm not entirely clear on what stuff is getting backed up in which bucket and how I control it. It's it's a very opaque system, and so you have this case where these people didn't think they were putting their pictures on the Internet. Uh, and it's not always clear in a lot of cloud services, where did your data go? There was just a story in the Washington Post earlier this week. Security experts, a cryptographer at Johns Hopkins University, didn't know that Apple was saving a working copy of these notes he was taking in text edit on iCloud. He thought this was just on his own computer. And this is a guy who's paid to know this stuff. So legally speaking, we already have laws against unauthorized access to computer systems. One of them, the CFAA, is not my favorite law ever. I think it does affect this sort of thing. Uh, at the same time, we also need to, I know not everyone is going to go through the hassle factor of two-step verification, but it should be there. It should work and you should know what it's protecting and what, it's, what it is not. Um, hold this down, I guess I did. Yep. No. Just tap it, oh yeah. Um, so my, uh, I, I guess I have less to say about the, the specifics of the Lawrence incident. Um, one of the other things that's on this, uh, sort of within the purview of this panel is related questions, I think a broader question or a, 
uh, about the, uh, as, as I guess uh, Professor Franks called it, this sort of epidemic of sexual humiliation sites on the net, the revenge porn, uh, the upskirt photo sites, those kinds of things, um, which I think is a, is a serious social issue. Um, uh, um, my thoughts turn, I guess, with Emma to, to, the, to the First Amendment, first of all, which, which uh, you know, as, as she said, crafting, even if we think this is harmful, um, crafting uh, uh, prohibition uh, that would survive First Amendment scrutiny um, uh, with respect to much of this material would be quite difficult, um, uh, probably not impossible, but, but difficult, and would require some, some care to make sure it doesn't sweep in uh, a good deal of protected material. I got involved in this. I had a, a student who was working on um, actually a, uh, a, a project on copyright, uh, possible copyright remedies on these revenge porn sites. Can you can you take down photographs based on uh, uh, copyright claims? And I, I, I spent half an hour, 45 minutes poking around at those sites um, uh, about a year or so ago. And there's a there's a good deal of material on at least on the stuff I sampled very quickly that is clearly protected speech. Um, there's uh, some material that may not be. Uh, drawing that line would be a Challenging, I think. Um, so that's one thought I had. And then in the discussion about these issues, um, and there has been a good deal of discussion in, in the legal academy at least, um, about what to do about this, what kinds of remedies can we provide, um, the conversation and debate has moved often uh, quickly to the question of website uh, operator liability for hosting uh, these photographs. Um, uh, there are existing, we can get into them more uh, during the uh, rest of this session, there are uh, existing tort remedies that, that may provide relief to people who have been harmed um, uh, against the individual uploaders of the private photographs that are being uh, posted. Um, but Section 230 of the Communications Act um, has been construed and I think does protect the website operator from, from being joined into that tort liability. It immunizes the website operators against a broad range of tort liability, including this. Um, uh, uh, and, and so much of this discussion has come around to people arguing about whether 230 should be uh, one end, I suppose, repealed completely, um, modified to uh, allow actions against the website operators. I think it's a, it's a very important Internet law problem because many, many issues um, have this feature where the intermediaries, the website operators typically, um, are helping to uh, um, spread this harmful information, and yet federal law uh, immunizes them against liability. And I, I hope we can get into some of those 230 issues during the discussion. Great. So as we can all see, there's, there's quite a bit at play here. Um, perhaps we can start with, you know, and, and it's kind of difficult in this case because we're sort of going from a very specific instance, right? This was Jennifer Lawrence had private photos in what she believed was a private place that was gotten into by someone else, and those photos got onto the Internet. That is a very different situation than, you know, a lot of revenge porn cases uh, where someone sent a private photo to someone else, and then after that relationship went south, something happened with that private photo. So the, the photo was initially sort of given with consent. Uh, you know, that's very different than someone hacking into a private computer that, you know, you may not have stored something on the web. It's different if someone guessed a password uh, because you named your, you used your dog's name as a password versus, you know, sort of a sophisticated phishing malware attack. So, which is to say that there are a lot of different cases that raise these issues. Uh, but generally speaking, what are some of the remedies that people who feel that their sort of private images and private data um, in the digital world has been exposed to the Internet, what can they do now under the law to try to sort of get relief, although they may never be able to, to get it back? Uh, 
So I think it, it is really important to focus on the fact that Jennifer Lawrence's situation and all the other celebrities in her situation are different from a lot of these other types of contexts. But I also think it's important not to make too much out of those differences. I think if we look at this from a, a more traditional privacy perspective, it shouldn't be that difficult of an intuition that when people disclose intimate information to one party, they often don't expect that it's going to be given to another party. Now, whether or not that's disclosing it to the cloud, whatever that might mean, versus disclosing that to your partner, it really seems that the more um, obvious way to look at this would be, don't we have some sense of contextual integrity for our privacy? So when you go to your doctor and you tell your doctor about your symptoms, you expect that your doctor is not going to tell anybody else about your symptoms or share, for instance, the pictures of your medical exams. So we have plenty of situations where we can think about it, not related to the maybe charged issue of women's naked bodies, to think about all the ways in which we expect that our information should be kept confidential within a certain relationship, even even if we have voluntarily given it to one party or to other parties. So I think that when we consider it that way, it's helpful to think about what we do in other contexts. Do we protect people's credit card information? Do we protect people's social security information? Do we protect people's home addresses? Do we protect companies' trade secrets? These are all ways in which we might be disclosing information all the time to certain trusted parties, but we have criminal penalties when people step outside of those particular contexts. And I think it's useful to think about why we should or should not apply those remedies here. Because it certainly is true that we can come up with ways for victims to talk about copyright remedies, for them to talk about things like suing for intentional infliction of emotional distress. But I think most people can see that with these particular types of behaviors, it's really difficult to talk after the fact about any type of remedy. Copyright is going to maybe work for Jennifer Lawrence. It's not going to work for the vast majority of victims who have really no recourse. It takes some time to figure out the notice and takedown process. You need to have a scary lawyer backing you up. Many private citizens are simply not going to have that kind of clout. And even when you get it removed from one site, it's going to pop up on 20 others. So copyright is really not a very effective solution for the vast majority of victims. And we also need to think about the fact that this is not just going to be situations of relationships gone sour, but actual ongoing domestic violent relationships that are being used to trap people in these relationships, used as extortion to keep them from reporting physical abuse to the police or from exiting the relationship. We've also seen that we've had plenty of sexual assaults that are being recorded and also being broadcast. This is a very big category of devastating intimate material that is getting out there. And the idea that there's any kind of lawsuit or copyright remedy that somehow is going to be responsive to that particular harm, I think is a bit naive or at least somewhat abstract, given what actual victims' experiences have been. And I also think it's important, again, as we're trying to think about adequacy of legal remedies, to think, yes, completely about First Amendment values and to think about the goals of Section 230. And in that thinking, consider how much of an effect, I would say a disciplinary effect, these types of harms are having on women's speech. How many women are now afraid of ever being intimate with anyone or of having their webcam hacked or having someone have, a, have a, a hidden camera somewhere recording them having sex or maybe taking pictures up their skirts? How many women are afraid to commit themselves truly to their careers or to online discourse because they're afraid that this is what's going to happen to them? This is the punishment that will be given to them. And the law's best response will be, well, maybe we can clean up the mess afterwards, though we probably can't unless you have tons of money and tons of time, which many of these victims will not have because they've just been fired from their jobs or kicked out of their schools. So I think that's really a, a sense that we have to uh, take seriously about how much this is affecting, of course, not only women because there are male victims too, but the real epidemic here is using the threat of this type of behavior, using the actual use of this behavior as a way to shut women up and to drive them offline, and that as a free speech matter, as a Section 230 matter in the interest of fostering open discourse and equality, we really all should be caring about that. And if I may disrupt the order a little bit, just so we mix it up, uh, if I jump down to David, if you could go in depth a little bit more on some of your opening statement, what are some of the ways that the law as it stands has tried to grapple with some of these issues, uh, and what are the ways people have looked at sort of adapting you know, laws that were crafted long before the Internet was what it was today to some of these problems that are a little bit more unique to the Internet? Yeah, yeah and, I, and, and I think the, the hacking... There's the hacking side of the problem. The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, as I guess Rob mentioned, um, is one. Uh, this may well have been, this, in this specific instance, uh, a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, accessing a protected computer without authorization. 
um, is uh, gives rise to both civil and criminal liability under the federal code, um, and it could be applicable. Obviously, I'm not giving anybody legal advice or taking a position on on whether or not it is, but that's certainly one avenue. Um, there are also on the uh, I guess on the on the tort side. Um, there are both, as several people have mentioned, uh, I mean, there are a number of, of state law tort remedies for some of this behavior, intentional infliction of emotional distress being one, invasion of privacy torts, which are recognized in most states now um, for, for outrageous conduct, outrageous activity, um, uh, I, I, I think is another. Um, the, I guess just a word um, in response to what uh, Marianne said, I mean, I, I completely agree that to, to think of copyright as a solution to this problem is, is naive and, and uh, um, not, not very sensible. But uh, let me just say that the, you know, the, the Copyright Act is one place in the federal code where aggrieved parties can quickly arrange to have, without a lawsuit, quickly arranged to have material taken down from the Internet. I mean, the notice and takedown procedure in Section 512 of the Copyright Act is a very powerful thing. Um, so if you have a copyright account, and I'm not saying, it's, uh, for all the reasons Marianne mentioned, this probably covers a small subset of the problem, but I think it's, it, it's not a, a, a trivial subset of the problem where people can, in fact, at least there is a remedy that is useful uh, in terms of removing material that, uh, for one reason or another, they believe they have a, have a claim on. The notice and takedown procedure at most websites operates automatically. You send the message in. They have to more or less give you some procedure to, to follow. The websites have to give you some procedure to follow if they want to claim the copyright immunity. They most do so. You click. You say, this is uh, my material. And it gets, generally speaking, you know, millions of times a day. Uh, this, this operates to actually remove the material um, uh, from that, uh, uh, from the site. And, and one other very quick comment I want to make about the um, notion, again, was, as Marianne was saying, you know, do we have to, does the law have to wait until something happens, something bad happens, um, before providing a remedy? Um, I think in this context, the answer may well be uh, yes most of the time. I mean, because this is a lot of what we are talking about falls into the category of, of protected speech or speech, um, there is a very serious problem with a, a sort of a prior restraint doctrine that says you can't put it up in the first place. Um, uh, that would avoid much of the harm, but I'm not, that raises even more serious First Amendment problems than uh, a sort of ex post regulation of this, which, which in raises its own uh, problem. So that, I think that has to be taken, uh, uh, this has to be thought about more carefully. And Rob, if, if you could talk a little bit, you know, we've mentioned the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and, you know, and hacking, I'm sort of reminded of several years ago um, when Sarah Palin's email address, I believe, was also hacked, in, you know, in, from what we understand, a fairly similar fashion. It was a pretty obvious password and someone guessed it and I believe they were sent with hers it wasn't guessing it was the password recovery questions which if you're going to use password recovery questions and you have a Wikipedia page about you don't have the answers beyond that page so, which I mean hopefully we'll all be in a position to make that mistake at some point so the, the, the point being that we put a lot of information on the internet and don't always think about you know the levels of security so what are sort of the levels of security for information on the internet and and how does the law protect those right now so cfaa i mean a lot of people's complaint with it is that it's so overbroad because right. if you read it the the text of it basically says if a computer might be on the internet and you use it in a way that wasn't specifically authorized by the people who own it or control it then you can be charged under this which leads to it can criminalize a lot of basic security research that needs to be done to solve the problems we're talking about right now. Um, you know, basic, if you, if a web page is coughing up data because you enter the right input, that can be a CFAA crime, even though you have to do that to prove to the owner of the page, hey, you have a problem here, fix it. Um, so I would say in this case, the problem is not that the existing laws don't protect it, it's that they also sweep in a whole bunch of other stuff that, you know, it criminalizes activity that the people in white hats need to do to stop the people wearing the black hats. 
and you know certainly as well because it is so broad and there's so many cases it can be hard for prosecutors you know to figure out which ones to bring and yeah well, how much how many tax dollars do we waste on prosecuting Aaron Swartz who was you know you can say he was being not very nice with Harvard's IT systems he, this was a fellow who put a laptop in a closet to download academic research to make it publicly available, taxpayer-funded research, I believe. He was hit with a CFAA prosecution, was threatened with something like seven years in jail, and committed suicide. Um, moving into a little bit more of sort of now that we have some sense of the lay of the land, what can be done uh, to change the laws and address some of these issues. Um, Emma, you, if you can talk about, you know, you mentioned a little bit when laws are being crafted, it's very important to understand what you're sort of sucking in unintentionally. And, uh, you know, at some point, Marianne, I'm sure you can weigh in on this as well. There's been a lot of effort, not necessarily at the federal level, but at the state level, to try to figure out a way to write laws to criminalize some of this behavior uh, with different levels of success. So if you could sort of give a rundown on what's been sort of tried and where the pitfalls have sort of come up. Sure. Um, and so uh, I know that Professor Franks and also um, Danielle Citrin, who's a, a professor at University of Maryland um, School of Law, uh, have been working very hard to figure out, is there a way to kind of craft model legislation that would allow going after, you know, only the, the you know, identified criminal activity that they want to target with this sort of law and not sweep in a whole whole host of other speech? And they're kind of key categories you have to think about in this sort of law. What kind of content is covered? Um, is it what we're pretty, the content that we're talking about is generally um, content that's that's all protected under the First Amendment, you know, when, when it's created. It's um, a person taking a photo of themselves or of, you know, a partner of theirs. Um, the, the nude image of a person is constitutionally protected speech, and there's no, there's certainly no crime involved in the creation of the image at the outset. Um, so the, the, trying to define a set of, you know, how is it sexually explicit imagery? Is it imagery that reveals different types of nudity or sexual activity without nudity. There's a lot of back and forth over what exactly is the nature of this content. And it's a bit difficult to define because there's some, you know, a fair, a fair range of the sort of information or the sort of photos that we could all think of, um, you know, of ourselves getting exposed to others that we would see as a, you know, a harassing sort of um, effort. So trying to define the, the category of content that would be protected so it's not so broad to include things like, um, you know, a photo of a woman breastfeeding or, you know, some other kind of uh, kind of nudity that you might very well be able to capture taking photos in public places um, and really try to focus it in on um, images that are in this kind of the sphere of intimate exchange um, that the Professor Franks is talking about. It's also who is who is potentially liable under these bills um, is a big question. It seems clear that you want to be looking at um, the person who uploads the photo out of the, the consent that they have or haven't received from um, the person depicted in the photo. But there's also a question in how these laws are drafted. Are they so broad that they start sweeping in the website, as we've been talking about a little bit, you know, the website where the photo is uploaded? Is it Does it sweep in any person who looks at that photo who may or may not know that that photo was uploaded without consent. Um, so I think just to give a couple of examples of laws, there's, uh, there's a Virginia state statute um, that was passed within, I guess, I think went into effect um, this summer, and actually the, the first prosecution under that law is underway. Um, and it's a relatively narrow law uh, that you know, includes a requirement that there's an intent to coerce, harass, or intimidate um, a person by displaying their image. Um, and, uh, you know, tries to define exactly what kind of, uh, what the content of this sort of image would be. Um, and so it's, you know, it's an attempt to draft a fairly narrow law, and I don't know if it's um, been challenged yet by, uh, you know, under the First Amendment um, by any groups. On the other hand, the state of Arizona also passed a law um, that was, again, it's a, it's a nude photo law. It's trying to um, restrict the ability for people to share nude photos of other people without their consent. But it basically, it, it would make the display, publication, or sale of nude or sexual images um, without the consent of the person depicted a felony. That was sort of it to the law. And so there are no exceptions for, um, you know, newsworthiness. There's no even real acknowledgement that, uh, you know, if, if somebody poses for a photo for an art exhibit, 
and they've clearly, you know, given their consent to the person taking the photograph um, to be included in the exhibit. If someone else then, uh, you know, hosts that exhibit online, they haven't gotten the consent directly from the model depicted. It's implied, you know, it's, it's part of the process of being a model in an art exhibit. Um, but under the letter of the law, as it currently is in Arizona, that website that's just hosting stills from the gallery show could be in violation of the law. Um, so it's this, you know, done with the best intentions of wanting to get the consent of people depicted in photos um, before those photos are shared, but not really done with a, a view to just how much sharing of images happens um, in a way that doesn't violate that initial consent, but also doesn't involve direct explicit consent. So this is getting a little bit into the weeds of, of the law here, but these are the kinds of things that we have to, to think through if we're looking at is it possible to craft something that really is very narrowly tailored and sort of anticipates all of these unintended consequences. And Marianne, if you could pick up on that and sort of talk about what some of the efforts have been to change law at a state level and if any of that could be translated, you know, on a federal level. Yes, so definitely to Emma's point, this is a difficult task, of course, because narrow drafting, clear drafting is always difficult. I'm sure everyone in this room knows that. Um, you can start out with the best of intentions, and you might end up with something that is not that great. So that is certainly true. And the organization for which I um, serve as the vice president, the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative, we've actually published a guide for legislators trying to make clear what elements we think really are constitutionally sound and protective for victims and what are the pitfalls that we think these legislators should avoid. And many of the points that Emma has made, we've, also, we've been making for quite some time. That is, there needs to be a very narrow definition of what's considered sexually explicit material. We need to be very clear about who it is that's actually responsible for this type of uh, criminal conduct. We need to have certain exceptions, including exceptions for the public interest, which is a pretty broad exception, but can include things like law enforcement or newsworthiness. But there are a couple of things on which we might diverge. That is to say, I, I, as much as I agree that Arizona's law has problems, and that has made the news recently because the ACLU is now um, suing it, um, so we can look at what some of those problems are. There's no public interest exception in the Arizona law. That was a mistake, and that's one they're probably going to fix. But as to the rest of it, it's not at all clear that there would be as many problems as the ACLU and others are trying to make it out to be. The, the exceptions include uh, exceptions for images that were disclosed in public or commercial settings. So really anything that we're talking about as a modeling shoot, photography exhibits, none of that's ever going to be a problem. And moreover, the question of whether or not you have to get actual consent from every single person every time is also not true in the Arizona law, because the law says it's when you knew or you should have known that the image in question was disclosed without consent. That's actually a pretty good standard to consider, especially if we th start thinking about revenge porn sites. If you're on a revenge porn site and it says she has no idea that you're looking at her picture and you decide that you're going to forward that, disclose that, or share it, you have a pretty good sense that this is a non-consensual image. And that's exactly the type of behavior we're discussing. Now, as to the question of who should be responsible, um, as many of you probably know, because of Section 230, which allows for a lot of immunity for um, online intermediaries, as far as state criminal law goes, 230 is always going to trump, and so these, none of these state criminal laws actually pose any threat to 230 immunity. It can create some headaches because people might be confused, but it doesn't, it can't actually preempt. Um, no state criminal law can preempt 230. That's obviously not going to be true if there's a federal criminal law that gets passed because, again, as many of you know, Section 230 is not absolute. It does not apply to copyright. It doesn't apply to um, electronic privacy communications, but it also doesn't apply to violations of federal criminal law, which is why Google, Facebook, Twitter all have to care about child pornography laws because Section 230 doesn't write them a blank check for that. And I think we could all agree that that's probably a good thing. So what I want to emphasize here is that while it is true that we have to care about what Emma's calling unintended consequences, sweeping in too much speech, we always have to be worried about that. That's true of every single law. There's no such thing as a law that doesn't um, sweep in something that we're probably not going to like sweeping in. The question always has been, not just in the First Amendment conduct, uh, context, but also in criminal law generally, on balance, are we accomplishing more good with this law than we're accomplishing bad? And for us to suggest or to have a kind of response that says, well, any time you suggest to someone that they might not be able to disclose whatever they want to disclose, that means a disaster for us as a democracy or for the internet. That hasn't proven to be true in many contexts. And just one that we can take that we've discussed already is DMCA 
notice and takedown has been going on for some time. Many people were convinced when it was passed that it was going to shut the Internet down. It looks like the Internet's doing okay, even in light of the fact that notice and takedown is, in fact, a very powerful tool to get people to stop saying certain things and expressing themselves. Same thing is true of child pornography laws. The same thing is true about gambling laws. And frankly, the same thing, I'll say again, is true about trade secrets, about identity theft, about voyeurism, all kinds of situations in which we have for quite some time accepted the fact that disclosures of lawful information can be criminalized. If we think about the identity theft context, none of us want to be criminalized for having a social security number or having a credit card number, and we're not. But if someone takes that information and uses it in an authorized way, we do say that that's criminal. And the same thing happens in trade secrets. So this is not novel. Maybe the only thing here that truly is novel is that we're now dealing with a type of conduct that is primarily directed at women, and we're trying to treat that the same as we would treat other types of sensitive information, and perhaps we're resistant as a society to giving those same rights. But that maybe shouldn't be the way we'd approach this. We really do need to think about what we count as privacy, what we consider to be the social value of saying you cannot actually disclose certain information unless we want to live in a world where there are no identity theft protections, no medical records protections, no trade secrets protections, no confidentiality protections at all. In other words, we're living in a world in which we restrict speech all the time. The question really is, when is it worth it on balance to restrict that speech or not? Now, some people will say that that's not what the First Amendment does, but effectively it is what it does, because there are plenty of situations not only when the Supreme Court has said on balance we have to consider these types of harms and consequences, but also many times where people don't even bring up First Amendment questions. How many people really think that spam is a First Amendment issue? How many of you actually think that disclosing, other than David, <laughs> think that spam is actually a First Amendment issue? It's kind of a rare thing. How many of you think that disclosing people's social security numbers is a free speech issue? So it's a question, generally speaking, about the criminal law, about copyright, about our law generally. Do we think that what's going to happen, the people we're able to protect and the types of values we're able to uh, support are more important than the few things that might happen otherwise? That being said, I don't want to trivialize or underestimate the fact that we do need to think as much as we can about unintended consequences. But let's remind ourselves that no law can ever accommodate every single unintended consequence. There's always going to be some measure in which we're going to be depriving people of some measure of their liberty because that's the way that laws work. And unfortunately, most of the time we, when we have to pass new laws, it's because our society has come up with horrific, terrible ways to hurt other people. And we can't simply just say, well, we're just going to let that happen because, well, you know, we're all full up on laws and we don't want any new ones. So again, I think it's a question of trying to figure out how how we traditionally treat privacy, confidentiality, intimacy, and why we're holding off on doing that here. David? Yeah, yeah, just a very quick uh, response. Obviously, this is a contentious, uh, 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 I guess, difference of opinion that it's not going to be resolved in a 50-minute in a uh, program. Uh, but, but, but just to focus on what Marianne said about, you know, looking for a way to, to, to craft a law that has more benefit, gives more benefit than harm. I would take the position, and I think it's a, supported by lots of authority, that that isn't what the first, that's precisely what the First Amendment does not ask. It doesn't say the, the, weigh the benefits against the harm. Um, it has a higher threshold in, in, the case, in cases involving the suppression of speech. Um, merely showing that the harm is, uh, you know, that the, the good outweighs the bad is sort of what the first, the first Amendment is, a thumb on the scales of, of, of uh, that determination. And I think it does make it more difficult. It's not simply enough to say that this is preventing harm um, when the harm is speech-related. We require, we require more. We require more precision in the drafting of those statutes um, to, to do everything possible to ensure that protected speech, everything possible to ensure that protected speech isn't swept in. We don't have to do that if it's an economic crime. We don't have to, we don't have to be that precise. Of course, Marianne is of course right. No law is perfectly precise and gets 100% of the bad guys and no, 0% of, of everybody else. But in the First Amendment context, we require uh, efforts to, to at least move in that direction that are, I think, um, would be difficult in this context. Not impossible, but, but very difficult. And, you know, Section 230 came up again. I don't know if you wanted to pick up that conversation at all as well as how that applies here. Uh, just to say that uh, uh, Section 230 is one of Congress's great legislative achievements of the past 20 years. I am prepared to say that. I think it is, it is in large measure 
I, I don't think I don't think it gets. No, congratulations to all that. Uh, I, you know, we're all, we're all in Congress bashing mode all the time. Um, those of us, at least, other than those who are, who are sitting in this room, I suppose. Um, uh, but Section 230 was of critical importance in helping the internet become the internet. Um, in 1996. Um, this immunity, you couldn't have Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, you name it. The, 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 the explosion of user-generated content on the net was simply unthinkable without protections for, uh, against tort liability. Um, there are many reasons to think that the broad immunity, there's an active debate, of course, about whether this very broad immunity uh, for the intermediaries is, is a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I, I guess one thing to consider um, is, as part of that debate is Tweaking that law a little bit, an exception for this, an exception for that, um, an additional exception for something else, um, probably makes it go away in, in rapid order. I mean, the immunity will disappear. There are lots of claimants who would like to see Section 230, lots of people who are harmed, people who have been defamed, people whose privacy has been invaded, um, uh, the, the people who have been scammed, people who have been defrauded, um, all sorts of things, um, who would like to see an exception for their harm, as it were, carved out of, of 230. And, and they have a good argument. You know, they, the, why can't we just make sure that there's a remedy in this case? Um, I think once Congress goes down that road and starts carving out exceptions, the floodgates will open and 230 will be um, – will, will – largely disappear. And I think that would be a dreadful thing for the Internet. But I have to note our friends in the entertainment industry, our well-connected friends in the entertainment industry, have suggested all kinds of tweaks to the DMCA that would pose all kinds of liability issues for websites. And, yeah, they've tried, and that hasn't worked. Um, and I'm a little more interested in how can we use the laws that are already on the books that prosecutors can already go to court with to make life as painful and expensive as possible for the, the, the people who went after these iCloud users and, uh, you know, other like-minded creeps. Um, well, I just wanted to, to build out a little bit on the, the Section 230 point um, to, to give an example of why, you know, those of us who are, are such staunch defenders of that law, what role it really plays. And so if you imagine, you know, we take the um, – a person or a website operator knows or should have known that this photo was shared without consent. Take that standard that, that we were just discussing. Um, if we had a law that said, uh, you know, I imagine I run my own photo hosting website. You know, I've created what I hope will be the next Instagram. I've got something way better than filters for photos. I don't know what it is, but I, oh. I'm running my own site. And there's a law in the books that says I can be taken to court if somebody else claims that I know or should have known that a photo that was uploaded to my site was a nude image of another person that was shared without consent. Currently, under the current law, under 230, I can immediately get out of any lawsuit that somebody tries to come to, you know, if thousands of photos are uploaded to my site a day, my site's doing very well, and somebody says, you know, a photo of me is on your site, um, and you should have known that I didn't consent to it, under 230, I don't even get dragged into the court case. You know, there's a very clear, I cannot be held liable for this, and I can go back to doing my business of running a photo hosting website. Um, if the law changed and there was this this question of should I have known that this, this photo was shared without consent, then we're in the case where I, as the operator of the website, have to go to court. I have to, you know, I have maybe two or three employees for my business, and now I've got to hire a lawyer. I'm operating on really thin margins, and now I've got to pay legal fees because I've got to go and defend. No, there's no way I could have known. So even if we're talking about, you know, good faith operators who really had no, no knowledge and couldn't be considered to, like, should have known that this these kinds of photos were on their site, they're still going to have to go to court and defend that. And that's one of the real burdens that this kind of um, liability framework would put on operators of, you know, not, not even thinking about the giant um, Internet platforms that deal with millions of pieces of content a day and how, you know, what knowledge standard do they have about tens of millions of photos hosted on their websites, even just thinking about, you know, small companies, two- or three-person operations trying to figure out how to navigate the situation, it would be vastly more complicated. It's sort of the flip side of what Professor Franks was saying, that, you know, copyright lawsuits are not something that people who don't have lawyers and retainer normally do. And it's, I guess it's a larger issue that we've made the law something that people who can afford to hire lawyers can be really good at, <laughs> and the rest of us try to stay out of trouble. 
Right. And just to respond to that, though, specifically, that's only we want to be careful to count the balance of these harms. Now, it may be true that especially the Supreme Court has gotten to the mode of saying, oh, we don't do balancing tests. But the fact is they do. This is the Supreme Court in the 1970s saying that concerns about overly broad laws must not only be real, but substantial as well, judged in relation to the statute's plainly legitimate sweep. That's basically saying exactly that there are harms out there that can be addressed by this law. And you can't just simply say, well, there could be all these things that might happen. There could. That's true. But they have have to be real harms, and they do have to be weighed against the legitimate sweep of any statute. So if we do that, if we're looking at the, the case of the poor uh, uh, site owner, yes, that's true. We, there's no reason to say that we there aren't going to create some issues there. Of course there will be. But we also know that there are actual current harms, that there are thousands of people who are actually being affected by this, whose lives are literally being ruined. That is a real harm as well. And to say, well, we're not really sure about what's going to happen to these particular site operators, that's a concern. But it cannot be the only concern. And as far as Section 230, people waving their hands and saying we want carve-outs too, let's face it, Section 230 already has carve-outs. It's already been made clear that we're going to say that Section 230 doesn't apply for federal criminal law, doesn't apply for copyright. Well, whose interest does that serve? It's not as though Section 230 is a natural right. It's not as that even the First Amendment is a natural right. It's always been a matter of interpretation. It's always been a question of who are we going to say gets protection and who doesn't? Which interests are we going to say are so valuable that even Section 230 does not apply? First Amendment doesn't apply in certain considerations either. So I think it's, it's an invitation for us to all think about why is that the case? Why assume that Section 230 is natural or that the status quo is better than what we could have instead? But as long as we're going to talk about Section 230, just one final note, the goals of Section 230 written in the statute itself includes to ensure vigorous enforcement of federal criminal law to deter and punish trafficking and obscenity, stalking and harassment by means of computer. That's in Section 230 itself, and that's what a lot of people seem to forget. It's not just about letting intermediaries do whatever they want. There are certain values and goals that are embedded in the idea of Section 230 that we would do well to ask if they're being served today. I, uh, I would love to keep asking questions, and I will, but I want to offer a chance to the audience if anyone has any sort of pressing thoughts they'd like to address to the panel. Right here in the front. So the question was, uh, what is the flaw with the current state of law? Why do we need a new law in this case? Uh, Marianne, do you want to start? I'd be happy to talk about that and to clarify that this, our work, the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative's work did not start with any high-profile case. The Jennifer Lawrence hacking incident is not where this started. We started two years ago when average people were being affected by this. And it's, it's all the same to me if finally now society cares about this because it happened to a celebrity, we'll take it, right? But this has been something that has happened to private citizens for years. So this is not some high-profile case that we're responding to out of a sense of, oh, now that it's happened to someone famous, we care. We care about this because the experience of victims has been that none of these laws work. If the image is out there, if it wasn't necessarily by someone who was trying to harass them, if it doesn't fit existing harassment or stalking statutes, and many of them don't, and just to give you a concrete example from just a couple of weeks ago, the California Highway Patrol officers who are arresting women for drunk driving and then taking their phones, taking naked pictures off their phones and sharing them with each other. Show me how that person intended to harass her. He didn't even want her to find out about it. So as long as we have rules that are simply going to be located with stalking and harassment and what have you, that's not going to be enough. So for those who think that the laws are adequate, I would invite you to do one very simple thing, which is to ask victims if they think that that is true. Ask what has happened when they've hired lawyers, if they can afford them. Ask what happens when they go to law enforcement. Ask them how many times they've been told what happened to you simply isn't a crime. It's your own fault for taking these pictures. Find out how many times they get turned away by lawyers who say, yeah, we could go after this revenge porn site owner, but he's basically operating this out of his mother's basement. There's no money there. There's no reason to pursue this. So for all these reasons, we're responding to an issue where thousands of victims have come forward and said, we cannot get any relief from the law. And I'm not going to second-guess those victims because they are the ones who are actually experiencing this firsthand. But if law enforcement is telling women it's your own fault this happened to you, they are wrong. That's, I mean, I know you agree with that, you know, but that that is not only just morally wrong and a, you know, a faulty understanding of how it's, what it means to, you know, 
take your own photo or, or share photos in an intimate setting, but it's also probably indicates that they don't understand the laws that do exist, that could be. And they might not be too effective in enforcing a new law. Right. And so, and, and I wouldn't dispute that at all. I think that the, by no means, I hope that no one gets the impression that I don't know anyone who thinks that criminal laws are the silver bullet to this problem. There is no silver bullet to this problem. We are asking tech companies to rethink their own internal policies. We're asking for people to engage in educational programs to inform people about why this is such a devastating and terrible practice. And we're engaging in training for law enforcement and for others because we want them to understand the stakes. So by no means is it a silver bullet, but much like in the 1970s and the 1960s when domestic violence was not considered a crime, when sexual assault was largely not considered a crime, especially if it was your husband who assaulted you, there is an importance, a social and legal importance to recognizing that this is a harm that should be addressed by the law, at least in theory. I'm, I'm glad you meant... Sorry, Emma, did you get a chance to... Well, no, so I was going to point to that if we have, you know, we have a range of laws on the books that might be useful in different cases. And I think, you know, whether it's a privacy tort, invasion of privacy, public disclosure of private fact, whether it's going after it from a, a hacking angle, whether it's a copyright remedy, whether it's intentional infliction of emotional distress, there is a mosaic of laws out there that are the way society has expressed that, it, you know, it is, it is wrong to intentionally cause emotional distress to another person. And there are laws against that sort of thing. And it's not going to mean that every single instance of this kind of exposure of a, a private photo is covered. It's There's true. There are going to be gaps where a case does not fit into every single aspect of or cannot fit into any single aspect of a current law. But if we try to craft a new crime that is expansively enough defined to cover every single instance of an exposed photo, we are absolutely going to sweep in other kinds of content, other kinds of expression, and that law is not going to survive First Amendment scrutiny. And so I think that's the, I mean, that's the real challenge that we're facing here. It is, there is no silver bullet, and it's very difficult to figure out how to get a law that can, you know, express disapproval over information that doesn't run afoul of the First Amendment. I wanted to call out, you mentioned getting companies to look at how the, the own rules they enforce. Uh, in writing about Gamergate, it was interesting to hear people have been targeted for harassment by the Gamergate community. Uh, and many of them said, you know, Facebook has actually gotten better at dealing with this. They, they take a report seriously and they do something about it. They've tried to educate themselves. Twitter hasn't done that yet. You know, if you look at the, the it only, it, they did not have a form to report abuse until I think earlier this year or last year, which is kind of insane for a social network that's been around since 2007. Uh, and, you know, I hope they're taking it more seriously because they can do a lot. You know, they, they are, Twitter is not the public internet. They have their own rules. They're allowed to change them to make it easier for people who are being harassed or who people who see others being harassed to call out the offenders. And they have not done enough. And, you know, going back to our sort of case example for the day, a, a lot of these images, not just of Jennifer Lawrence, but of celebrities more generally, were circulating for a long time on websites like 4chan and sort of blew up when they hit Reddit, which had a thread, uh, you know, sort of really make some of these images go viral, which I believe eventually was shut down. But, it, it, you know, it was sort of a question of, it, I've heard said many times in, in some of the ways, the, the most wonderful thing about the internet is also its greatest flaw, that it's sort of, you know, for the users to use the way they want to. And, and it's difficult to say a website that is based on the idea of people having open forums to share and discuss what they would like also needs to be responsible for then making judgment calls of, of when it crosses a line. So what are some of the difficulties with, with that? Perhaps, you know, David or Rob might want to jump in here on. on somebody, somebody said a while back the biggest problem with the Internet is the people on it. <laughs> Uh, to that point, though, I would just say that I'm glad that you brought up Twitter as an example uh, to dovetail with Emma's point about intentional fiction of emotional distress. This is why I would suggest to us that we need to rethink the emphasis on emotional distress. When people are engaging in these activities, the Jennifer Lawrence hacking, the um, the CHP, all these uh, all these different types, not just some of the cases, but a, actually a pretty large number of these cases, why are people doing this? Well, because they think it's funny because they think it's entertainment. It's not intended to cause emotional distress. So why are we holding on to that as the one thing that we would penalize? Why is it any better? Why is a person any better who releases one of these intimate pictures because he's trying to hurt his ex-girlfriend's feelings versus he's just trying to make people laugh because he thinks it's awesome and her body's so great? Why do we think that that's better? Why if he's doing it for profit, if he's getting ad revenue, if he's getting bitcoins? Why would we say, well, yeah, it's totally fine if you do it for that, but just don't hurt her feelings? But, but, that seems like an odd emphasis to make, especially Marianne, in the public it, nature of this humiliation. 
don't, don't you need to have, as, as part of, of a, a prohibition, you have to, I think, you, maybe I misunderstand, but you have to have some reference to an improper purpose. I mean, you're not saying that, I, I don't think, like the Arizona statute, which I think is, is clearly unconstitutional, that you cannot post a picture of someone without their clothes on. I mean, that, but that's not what the statute says. Well, okay, but but but, and that's not what you're saying, right. I assume. So there has you, to be. But and the, the difference is that you have so so you too have to focus on the improper purpose. I no, think. no. Pur- if, if purpose is meant by causing distress, no, no, it doesn't have to be focused on that because I think there is a conflation between intent and motive. The motive for why someone does something, the motive for why someone spies on you in your bedroom, why would that matter? If they're doing it because they think you're funny looking or whether they're doing it because they think you're arousing should not matter, I think. When we look at different categories, and now we're back to the theme of Jennifer Lawrence calling this a sex crime, think about the way sex crimes tend to be worded, not with it's only sexual assault if you have sex with someone without their consent and intend to distress them. That's not how we think of sexual sexual assault. We think of it in terms of consent. There are certain forms, and again, this is true of our identity information. This is true about our, our other forms of privacy. Well, do we only criminalize disclosures of medical records when you intend to distress me with them? No, that's not even part of the statute at all. Same thing when it comes to Social Security numbers. Oh, I just thought it'd be funny to put your Social Security number out there. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. No one cares. Right, so I think when it comes to certain types of intimate information, and that's why that has to be very clearly stated and narrowly defined, the motive for why someone is doing it should not be the point. It's the lack of consent to do so. And I think it's something that is becoming clearer to us as a society that we have serious, deep problems with sexual consent understandings in this country. That is true. We can see this in terms of how many sexual assaults are actually committed every year, but also in the sense that we seem to take it as a given that it doesn't matter whether a woman especially consented to the use of her body for sexual entertainment or enjoyment. And I think it's about time we started to rethink that. Any other questions? Hand in the back. So the question was, uh, is this an instance of phishing versus hacking? Social engineering is still hacking. It's the easier kind often. <laughs> I don't know. Apple. It's, well, so it's unclear exactly what went down. Apple has come out and said that their systems were not hacked, which is to say that Apple writ large was not hacked, that yes. they did not rule out that individuals uh, through sophisticated techniques, whether it was social engineering, whether it was phishing, were able to get passwords for individual accounts that, that they did not believe you know, they were authorized. Two things about Apple's, they're not generous with specifics about their products in cases like this. And they, they have a history, their device security, everyone who I've known who's looked at things like Touch ID and the iPhone thinks that's great. Their cloud security, they've had some real issues with it. And and also to that question, does that, does that matter? Is that a significant distinction um, that we're talking about? You know, we've talked about how there's a difference between this case where you have sort of a... a perhaps a violation under the CFAA. So where where does the distinction of how the image was gotten um, come into play? Well, isn't it, I mean, I think back to what Marianne was saying about if, if you think consent is the fulcrum uh, for or the, helps to divide the line, then whether you have hacked into someone's account or have a a uh, photograph that was sent to you, or you have access to that account in a perfectly reasonable way. Uh, I mean, all of those would, would matter and would have to be sort of evaluated, I guess, as part of the... Um, I mean, there's a much larger debate here, I think Marianne would agree, um, about the role of consent um, in generally with respect to information on the Internet. There's an active international debate now with mm-hmm. respect to the, you know, the so-called right to be forgotten, in European, uh, uh, the various uh, European laws, where because you don't, if you no longer consent to have information that has been published about you, you can sort of withdraw the consent, and websites have to uh, uh, delete information that may be floating uh, around about you. Um, and again, not to beat a dead horse, but uh, the this is uh, 
familiar landscape, in a sense, for the debate, uh, the, the First Amendment debate, which has uh, sort of been in, in the background of this privacy, consent privacy information debate for, for many years. What will it do to the free flow of information if you have to show that you have consent in some form um, for passing on a, 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 a piece of information? You know, do, do you, this is related to this, this uh, idea, I think, that, that the people should own the information about them. They should own the information about them, should be a property interest even in the information about them, and therefore people have to come to them if they want to publicize uh, the various things about them. That has serious, just very difficult issues about that we could call free speech or First Amendment issues because it will, it is very difficult to, to evaluate whether consent has been given in many circumstances or to find out um, how you demonstrate consent and it would have a very serious impact on the sorts of things. You know, can you tell people you saw me at this, I always use this as an example about owning information. Can you tell people oh, I saw David Post at this uh, the thing at the, uh, in the Rayburn office building? Well, if I own that information, uh, you have to, you, you, you can't. Um, it's an extreme example. Nobody suggests we should have such a, such a law. But that's the issue, um, I, I think, with respect to, to sort of balancing the free flow of information on the one hand against reasonable requests for to, for, for a showing of, of consent with respect to some information on the other. And I think that that's right, and I think it's one of the reasons why I'm actually optimistic about this particular type of material, because there seems to be a fairly easy way to fix this. That is to say, have consent forms. You want to disclose somebody's image, just ask them to sign a form, and you can disclose away. Make it easy. We do certainly have something like that when it comes to modeling releases. We have that when it comes to medical records. If you really do want to uh, submit this information and you think that it is consensual, because that's the only principled stance to take, then make sure that you have documented evidence that it is, in fact, consensual. We can fix this. This is actually not nearly as hard as things like the right to be forgotten or about a general question about what people can say about you. It's very specific, and it could be resolved through paperwork. I saw one more hand right here. So given that there are already takedown regimes for child pornography and these um, other protected what have you, um, would it be that much more burdensome to require search engines, Facebook, other tech companies to also take down uh, revenge pornography? And what do you think it would uh, possibly impede the government's goal? Can, can I? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, well, I just so there there are a couple of things that you really have to keep in mind when you're talking about a, a notice and takedown regime or some kind of takedown regime. And first and foremost, what a notice and takedown regime does is give a person the ability, the right, a mechanism to tell, say, a website host to take down someone else's content, to, I mean, to take down something that was uploaded by another person. So, the, and this is a mechanism that has been helpful in taking down, you know, uh, infringing copies of movies and songs, but it's also, it at its heart, it is giving a person ability to say, take down what that other person has uploaded. And so the potential for abuse of these systems is very high. Um, when you look at something like the, the DMCA, um, the, the copyright takedown system, there are a number of different safeguards that are built into the system based on, you know, what do you have to include in a notice? It's got to include, you know, the ability to, you have to identify yourself, including contact information. You have to, uh, attest that you are the legitimate owner of this copyright. Um, the person who's, who uploaded the content originally has the ability to, to push back and to say, no, this is actually my content, or I've been making a fair use of this um, copyrighted work, or what have you. And they can file a counter notice, and the website then puts the information back up online and leaves the two of them to fight it out in court. So it's not as simple a mechanism as just saying, you know, give somebody an easy form to fill out, and the information comes down, and you're set. There's a lot that needs to go into figuring out how to construct this takedown mechanism so that it's not so vulnerable to, um, to someone using it to say, I don't like what that person said, so I'm going to file a takedown request and, and abuse the system. One, I think one of the real challenges, too, that we have to think about when we're talking about questions around um, nude images is that there's, there's a sensitivity and a privacy interest that the person depicted in the image might have. And so if, you, if it's your photo that's been posted without your consent online, you will want to you know, file a takedown request and get that taken down. If you have to identify yourself in that request, that could cause some privacy concerns. 
But if it's somebody else trying to abuse the system, if you've uploaded your photo, say, under a pseudonym, um, and you're happy with the photo being out there, but you don't actually want it connected with your real name, and then somebody else is trying to abuse the system to get that content taken down, your ability to respond and say, no, no, that's actually me, leave it up, requires you to disclose who you are. So, I mean, so there are some, like, complicated issues thinking about the, <laughs> the vast range of nude imagery that's available on the Internet. Some of it is um, this kind of non-consensual posting, but there's a lot of it that is uploaded anonymously or pseudonymously, but with the full consent of the people depicted in it. And so those are some of the, as we're looking at what are all of the possible effects and the possible unintended consequences, that's another one that we really have to take into account. David? Um, yeah, j just to follow up a little bit on, I, mean, I think a, a notice and takedown regime is worth exploring in this in this context. Just from your question, just to clarify, the, the existing notice and takedown schemes, and, and particularly the copyright one, which is, has been the one that is in, in Section 512, um, does require, as Emma was saying, it's the, the burden is on the aggrieved party. It, what, it, it, it's not, it, it doesn't say Google or Facebook or Twitter, you know, has to take stuff down if it's copyright infringement. It says they you have to respond to the copyright owner's identification of the infringing material, um, uh, which I think is a very important, um, that has been very contentious over the last four or five years in, in the courts working that out, but they have more or less come to that resolution that it's the obligation of the uh, aggrieved party to find the material, it's not a trivial obligation, to find the material and then to send the, uh, the notice in, at which point the process kicks in. As Emma said, there are all sorts of protections. You do have to be careful about allowing something to be abused. If it's too easy to submit a takedown notice, people uh, will be using it for purposes that have nothing to do with the harms you're trying to, uh, to protect against. But all those, I think, are I mean, that's, you know, the devil's in the details. Um, you all should know that. Uh, um, and and I, I think the, the, the copyright takedown regime, if one wanted to go in that direction for these sorts of, of problems, I think would be worth looking at carefully to see how well it has worked, uh, what hasn't worked about it, how that might be able to at least streamline getting at you know, hundreds of millions of copyright infringing the files are taken down weekly under Section 512. So in that sense, it has removed an enormous – I mean, I know the copyright industries aren't crazy about it because they have to go find the material. They don't like that. But on the other hand, it has – many people think it has had a salutary effect. It's done the job pretty well. It's provided a process at scale – and scale is always important when you're talking about the Internet. We're talking, whatever we're talking about, we're talking about millions of it. Um, and at scale, it has allowed for the automation of takedown, um, but yet protecting the people who have uploaded and giving them an avenue to say, hey, wait a second, this is fair use, or I didn't post it, or it's not infringing, or, or whatever their defense might be. So that would be an, an interesting comparison, I think, to look at that carefully and see how it could be modeled to... Uh, uh, to work on this problem might be a, a, a useful avenue of approach, actually. You mentioned search engines, and one thing you know, I, we should be careful about going too far. Somebody like YouTube can have content ID to, to look for copyrighted material getting uploaded, A, because Google owns it and they have a lot of computers on hand, but also that they, have a, they have a known universe of copyrighted material that they get from the entertainment industry that they can use to match against this. There's no such thing when it comes to people's private photos. And trying to do a general searching match, you know, webmail sites can do automated screening against child pornography because, A, there, there's no such thing as, there's no consensual anything there. You know, that's flat out illegal. And there's this hash database that it's assembled by the uh, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Children. Thank you. That they can do a search against, you know, compare the hash of that image, the mathematical shortcut to it, to what's in that database. Um, and doing that for the, the broader universe where there can be legitimate cases to send a picture of a naked person an email, um, that's not going to work. Just one clarification, though, with child pornography that actually isn't quite that easy because it's not always easy to tell whether the person depicted is, in fact, a minor. And so they do actually have to engage in some judgment calls and some investigations. So that's important to note, not necessarily more onerous than figuring out whether or not a picture was consensual. And uh, unfortunately, we've broken our promise to keep it to about 60 minutes, but um, we were close. So wonderful conversation that I'm sure could continue for hours, uh, but we appreciate all of you coming. Um, we appreciate the Net Caucus having us here today. Um, thanks very much.